Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Merry Christmas. On AM560. Ho, ho, ho. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We ended the show yesterday with this uh, name a snowplow contest that uh, Mayor Triple Threat has launched because she's just a ton of fun, especially around the holidays. And, you know, the karaoke contest wasn't enough. Now we got to keep building up. We got to keep distracting. Next, we're going to have Carjacker of the Year Award. She's a great entertainer. There's no question about it. And I enjoy her, which is why I'm supporting a re-election. No, you're Um, not. The... um, uh, we had a lot of good suggestions. The first one out of the gate, I thought, was very good. Salt and pepper. So, oh, that's right. Push, Push it. it real good. And then you get the salt mm-hmm. with the snow. Because mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. uh, um, we need okay. Spinderella. Is this making yeah. you feel uncomfortable? Um, no, there's six of them though. We do, we can't. We there's six winners. Oh, six winners. Okay. So good. that's why this is a daunting task. It's not just one and done, Dan. Salt and pepper's good. Black ice matters. I liked uh, dibs. Dibs I think it was, was Will and Skokie Dibs. You know that's so uniquely Chicago. Um, Blandick, Blandick is pretty good. The yeah. Jane Byrne, but she's gotten too much. No, I don't think Jane Jane Byrne. Is. There's no nexus there. I mean, I guess mm. she was elected because Blandick. Yeah. Said Snow. Yeah. Snow. Mm, yeah. Um, I got one from a friend of mine yesterday after the show that I think is the leader in the clubhouse. I'm, I may submit this myself, okay. but I, I'm afraid it won't get consideration under my name. So we may have to submit it under. Um, Oh, Quinn's Quinn's name or something. All right. Uh, ready? I'm ready. Get Whitey. <gasps> oh, that's good. You see what they did there? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Well, Get, get Whitey. Whitey. Yeah. All right. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line. 646-36DA, turnkey.pro. Text line will sprinkle in other suggestions since not everybody had an opportunity to offer their creativity yesterday. And they're going to take, it's till January 6th. Go to chicagoshovels.org and you t- type in your name. I typed in Snowflake because you can only type in one name, so that was the one. Snowflake's not bad. It's a double entendre, too. Right. I like it, that. Because we're a bunch of snowflakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Removing snowflakes in a snowflake world. Um, January 6th. <laughs> that day is sacrosanct. Oh, my God. How can, Does she know what she's doing? How can we be talking about snowplows? On... Um, on yeah, January 6th, that was the day that we almost lost our democracy. That's not me saying it. That's a noted historian like Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House spokeshuman. Mm-hmm. Ooh, Let's try su- Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House spokeswoman. I got a suggestion. Oh, that didn't even work. Backup plan B. Mm. What we saw on January 6th was the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. Hmm. And uh, the president has been very clear. Our democracy continues and remains under threat. And we all have a have a part to protect it. Uh, the committee has been Civil doing War. important bipartisan yeah. work yeah. to get to yeah. the truth okay. of what yeah. happened blah, 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 on that very day. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. 
That's enough. That's enough of you. <laughs> I think you lost me at greatest attack on our democracy, Representative Republic, since the Civil War. Boy, mm. that's, that's sort of glossing over... Something big. Um, well, a couple of things, I would say. Uh, 9-11, hello, let's start with that. I mean, you know, 2,600 Americans died in Pearl Harbor. I mean, that but, was that's sort of a big deal, I think. Um but okay, sure. I don't want to spend a lot of time on Jan Six. We're going to have Julie Kelly on the show later oh, uh, because here's my position on it: fruit of the poisonous tree. You know, there's two concepts uh, in justice: procedural due process and substantive due process, and you can't fail either one. And if you fail the first one, procedural justice, so procedural due process, then it doesn't matter what results you get. So just and and since we had this star chamber committee sort of act like judge and ju- or prosecutor really and jury, then any sort of indication of bias th- that was manifest by every single member on that committee would disqualify them and eliminate the credibility of the investigation. So you can tell me what the four criminal referrals are all day long. I don't care. Right. Don't care. Fruit of the poisonous tree. Just as we would be offended in an actual (laughs) criminal investigation. I guess they fancy this such an investigation. It's not. They don't have that power. Um, But if if, uh, uh, police planted evidence on somebody they knew committed a crime, and he in fact did commit the crime, would we say, well, we know he committed the crime, so it doesn't matter. The ends justify the means. That's not how our justice system works. That's not how any true justice system works. The violation of the norms of a free society. So my suggestion to you, and I mean, I'll take pushback, not from never Trumpers. I I get it. You don't care about any of these norms. Anything goes when it comes to getting Trump. I just like the members of that star chamber committee. I don't, I don't want to hear from you. Don't care. I already know your position, but for people that, are in between or open-minded. Um, I'm concerned with the rule of law. If President Trump broke the law, then he needs to be held accountable just like anybody else. But uh, you can't do it with the end justify the means approach. You can't do it when you eliminate or where you violate the norms of procedural and arguably in some respects substantive due process. And that's what they did. I love what Andrew McCarthy said yesterday because I watched for a little bit. It was just a rehash of everything we've ever seen in Andrew McCarthy like they're just selectively picking what the truth is you know in connection with Trump's speech he took pains in the speech uh, to say that you know he wanted them to march peacefully the fact that the committee doesn't broadcast that he said that doesn't make that go away so you know again this is a theatrical exercise more than you know a real hearing process Jonathan I was people should be offended by it people should be offended by the cherry picking of evidence People who run around saying they're great protectors of our democracy, they believe in justice, they believe in due process, they believe in people's individual rights. We certainly have a conversation with those same people when it comes to, I don't know, violent criminal defendants in Chicago, but not with Trump. All the norms are suspended. Well, that makes you a threat to democracy, ironically, doesn't it? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You could also reach us at 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. But at the end, I mean, they're all just lingering around, you know, just patting each other on the back. And that's what they do. They're members of Congress. So embarrassing. They're malingerers and lingerers (laughs) 
and yeah, maybe we can put that on a snowplow. And you know, back slappers. That's what they do. That's that's like eighty percent of the job, as far as I can tell. Because they know that you know, come after the break, they're not going to. It's going to be dismantled. So this was their swan song, and that's why they repeated everything again. And again and again. They started with a conclusion. They worked backwards. That's also not justice. Prosecutors aren't, aren't the, the, the actual prosecutors. They're not to, not, not to get somebody the charges to go where the evidence leads. Did this committee do that? No. No. So what are we talking about? I mean, I know CNN and MSNBC, they'll obsess about it and we'll have all this you know, back and forth. Never Trumpers will be, you know, have their day again. But it's all irrelevant, too. I mean, Andy McCarthy, when he says it's theater, he's precisely correct because, as I said yesterday, you already have an independent counsel that's been appointed. Right. You already have a criminal investigation going on in the Department of Justice. So what do they care what the committee refers uh, refers to them? They, they don't. They're doing their the own independent investigation. Well, the Department of Justice, they're not going to do anything with this, Right. Well, I mean, they'll, I, they can, I don't know, they can take whatever that, although, I mean, here again, if they, they take any work product from this commission, I would say, well, this again is fruit of the poisonous tree. You're using evidence that was the uh, work product of a sham proceeding, violative of procedural due process norms. That's what I would argue if I was Trump's counsel in part. So, you know, I mean, go ahead, have your day and continue to, uh, beat the January 6th drum because it, 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 so January 6th is like a proxy for Trump. Everybody has made up their minds and there's no real persuading anybody, I don't think, because the people that don't like Trump, unfortunately, by and large, maybe there's some exceptions, I mean, don't like Trump to the extent that they are irrational. Not like, I don't like Trump, but I like some of his policies. And so I'm not talking about that group. The, you know, the, recal- the the sort of the reluctant Trump supporter or even the reluctant Trump opponent. I didn't like Hillary. I didn't like Biden, but Trump was just too obnoxious and so on and so forth. That's just such a small group of people that can distinguish their dislike of somebody from the rule of law, unfortunately, which is why this country's in such a mess. Chuck in Delavan, Wisconsin, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. How was the uh, bottle top stop oh, over the weekend? We, we got one more Mr. and Mrs. Claus this next Friday night, 6 to 8. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Hey, I think the, the guys January 6th should have protested beastly like they did in downtown Minneapolis where they burned the whole city down and they blew all the glass out of the buildings and stuff and drove the price of a 2 by 4 up to $10 and plywood to $100 for a half-inch sheet. That's what I think they should have protested peacefully that way. And everything would be fine. Okay, Thank thanks, Chuck. W-I-N-D. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, on this uh, Christmas installment of... Sports and politics. The NBA doesn't want to be outdone by the NHL when it comes to intersectionality and cultural Marxism. No, no. You know, the NHL tweeted out recently right. that uh, a, a man who identifies as a woman is a woman is a woman, and a woman who identifies as a man is a man, and they've got some LGBTQ league where men are beating up on women. That's going to be fun on the ice. Uh, NBA. That's a real fair fight, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Like that MMA fighter, you know, that dude yeah. who's a woman who 
kick the crap out of that other female. Get some. That was fun to watch. Get some NHL enforcer like Bob Probert to go up against a um, woman pretending to be a man. See how that works out. Uh, anyway, um, alien life form and NBA commissioner Adam Silver said that he would be hugely disappointed if the NBA doesn't hire its first female coach within the next five years. Mm-hmm. This generation coming in grew up differently and has a different sensibility about roles men and women can play in the workforce. I've said this before, as much as professional sports has led and the WNBA and NBA have led in certain areas, we're a bit behind in this area. We should have more women head coaches. We should have a female head coach right now. We should have more women referees. And it's something we're working very hard on right now. Yeah, they're working so hard. Mm. Seven female coaches are now NBA assistants. And uh, I guess more female referees have been hired as well. What do you think? Uh, Goldie Hawn in the NBA. More Goldie Hawns in the NBA. 312-642-5600. Turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA. Turnkey.pro text line. Now, uh, I've got a suggestion. Again. I've got a suggestion. Mm-hmm. I can go Adam Silver one better. What? You want to keep up with the NHL? <gasps> Brittany Griner? Mm-mm. No. As a female, as a first female coach of the NBA. You're so behind the times like Adam Silver. Sam Britton is available. Sam Britton is available. I think the NBA should be all trans women coaches. Like women coaches? That is so like three years ago. I mean, come on. Boring. Well, are there any Division I female coaches in charge of a men's basketball team. Uh, hey, we're out there because I'm trying to. Find not that out. I know of. And I'm scouring the Googles. I, most Mike, of the, do you know of most anybody? of those Division One teams uh, want to win? Hey. So, oh, I know. Uh, hey. No, no, no. Um, I'm excuse kidding. me. Do you know you're, who you're working? You're, you're no, no, a Division One no. coach. The fifth and sixth grade girls basketball. We won. <laughs> girls basketball. Yeah, but I could coach boys. If Bill Lambert can I coach can get- girls, then Amy Jacobson can coach boys. That's how it goes. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six. Type in D A then a quick comment. Do you think it's the same uh, a woman coaching men as it is a man coaching women at the professional level, or, uh, or the or the collegiate level, which is basically the professional level? Let's start days. with what I know. High school. Okay. So I had a female coach my whole time. Coach Penstone, she was great. Then our senior year, she left. And we got Coach Jorgensen. And we, he was a little shit because he's never coached women or young ladies, and we'd never had a male coach. So it was kind of, you know, we've always had female coaches our whole life. Yeah. Middle school all the way up. He did a fantastic job. He was great. He cut, I mean, he, we started. Gene Ariema at Connecticut, right? The, the most successful basketball, I, women's basketball coach. I in, coach boys, I coach men. You coach men? Well, they're 18 years old. Most yeah. of them on the team last year, they were men. What was that? The fifth and the sixth grade boys team that were eighteen year olds. Amundsen boys varsity. Boys varsity volleyball. volleyball. Okay, well volleyball. that's that counts. Okay. And there's not a lot of female volleyball coaches out there for in the men's division, the women's division. There is, and uh, I think we are very successful. We're more getting that. We're in the gold bracket now. We get to play Lane Tech and Whitney Young. Something the schools never. This never happened before. See, I think that women coaching. But I I, men... I don't mess I don't mess around with them. Like they come up to me like, oh, coach, I, I need a band aid. You're not bleeding. Go suck it up. Throw some dirt on it. I don't. I don't play into their drama. I just treat them, you know, like 
I want them to man up. Are you? you know do you I mean? go into the locker room when they're showering and just no, like no, like no, the I owner of uh, the Indians and in Major League, and then you know the the manager just stands there naked and is like, "I'm too I'm too old to go hiding behind the locker." She's like, "Fine, I, I don't care." No, I draw, I don't go in the locker room with them. I have them change and then come out. See, I and think- I don't make a big deal about it. I don't care. Just you hurry up. I would think the difficulty in part would be, you know, one of the jobs of a coach is to break young men down, and sometimes that involves emasculating them. And I think, oh, that, I'm, I think that comes across differently from a woman than it does a man. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six. Type in da then a quick comment. One of my dreams was to always to coach a boys team, whether it be fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth. Because I think I have the fundamentals down. Look, I, I get it. There's they're great female basketball but, players, and they're students of the game. And so, yeah, could could um, I don't know Cheryl Smith coach basketball? Could Rebecca Lobo coach basketball? Nancy Lieberman and so on. Yeah, yeah, probably. But um, but just because you're a good player does not mean that does not translate into coaching. Yeah, look at me. look at Larry Bird. Terrible coach. I mean, terrible coach. Well, there's a lot of ex-players that are bad coaches. Right. You can't. So it doesn't transition as easily as people. No, think it I does. understand. But 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 the, I, but the I, dynamic. NF, oh, NHL that, or NBA? Excuse me. That's a big. That's. Well, first of all, it doesn't really matter in the NBA because the coaches are there just for window dressing. That's just their <laughs> ornamentation. There's no coaching that goes on in the NBA. There's not even barely any basketball. It's just like a glorified shoot around. So I can care less about the NBA because it's such a terrible product. And anybody can stand on the sidelines with their arms folded and like yell at the ref about you know some travel call he missed. Um, that doesn't take much doing. So it's less about like the NBA. Oh, it's, it's such a high bar when it comes to coaching. It's not. I mean, other than managing all these spoiled brats. But um, uh, I but, but I still think the dynamic. Th- I still think the dynamic is different, and it sort of goes to this idea that there's no difference between men and women if you possess the same. Skill sets, and I would say that generally speaking, that's true. Um, it's you know meritocracy based on aptitude, but I, I do think there is a difference just in the dynamic between male coaches and female coaches. And then if you, then are we going to get into if a female coach gets fired, is this going to be oh it's gender well, discrimination, and and we're going to have to compare her record to to other coaches who who haven't been fired, and it's going to be this endless identitarian nonsense. It's going to get even more silly than it already is. Trying to find, there's one woman, are you familiar with her? She's in the WNBA, so I'm sure Mike knows who she is. Tamara Moore, she becomes the only female head coach in men's college basketball. Where is she coach? I'm trying finding now, right now. Mm-hmm. Jim but this Crown is Point. 2020. Hey, Jim. You know, hi. You know, uh, it's bad enough for a former player to be a head coach in the NBA. They, they really don't respect you. They, they really, the player realizes he's way more valuable than the coach. And he was so little, my son, that what happens if, if the players really get down on the coach and want, you know, want her out? It, it, it hurt, you know, we see when Magic Johnson got rid of the coach, what happened? It, it's, it's ridiculous. Another thing, inside the locker room, uh, it, it's akin to a, a um, lunchroom at a factory. I worked in a factory. We had no women in the lunchroom. It was wonderful. Locker room talk. Say, yeah. Yeah. What happens about that? It, it just—it's it, not going to work, right? And then it's going to be—you're creating a hostile work environment by. And then I don't feel safe. Yeah, by rat-tailing yeah. people in the locker room. But and I so understand forth. locker room talk. And all right, so this woman, coach, are you ready for this? Masabi Range College in Virginia, Minnesota. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, the flying squirrels. What I don't even know where everybody's got. Never... Everybody's got to start somewhere. But I, I, you know, the 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 whole dynamic. I mean, I got to tell you, like basketball is one thing. Like football and all these these oh. women who are uh, like now they're offensive line coaches and. Well, yeah. Well, what we I'm at the San Francisco even color analyst line. Oh, they're not uh, even play by play color analysts. I mean, ugh, come on. Just some, of, stop. some are good, some are bad. No, they always, you know. Uh, I know I'm going to come across. Sideline, I'm going to come across a as a Cretan and misogynistic, and I'm trying to oppress well, the staff side. The but come on, who's a good, strong female in the booth? Hmm. Mm. Tall skyscraper in Wichita. I mean, hey. I, have, I, have, I have no idea. I don't, I have hey, no buddy, idea. Mike. Uh, Mike yeah. is in his own private idol. He doesn't want any part of this. He <laughs> wants to. He wants to maintain a career. Yeah. I mean, it's a big ask to be, you know, W to be an NBA head coach. I mean, you could coach the Bulls; wouldn't matter. Honestly, <laughs> like, they have could you put, been they to could, a game lately? No, why would I? You could They're giving away free tickets. You, you, to could, you could stand on you could stand on the sideline of and act uh, like I care. Yeah, I mean, who coaches the Bulls now? Uh, Doug Collins is he still there? Doug Collins still coaches the Bulls. I don't even know who the head coach of the Bulls. Uh, what, yeah. Mike, difference at this point does it exactly. make? Well, who's, I mean, I mean, I like Bob Love. Bob Love still play for the no, Bulls. Bob Love died. Oh, yeah. God damn. Well, I mean, I don't keep track. Quentin Daly is he still playing for the Bulls? Enos Watley. I mean, I like. I mean, I love the the Bulls. Billy Donovan. Oh, Billy who? Donovan. Sure, yeah. Oh, who's yeah. That? Who? Billy, Billy Donovan. He won two championships yeah, in Florida. Florida. Oh. Yeah. Oklahoma City. Providence. Head coach yeah. with yeah. Kevin Durant. Yeah, yeah, he's me. he's not bad. Yeah, the Bulls are bad. What is yeah. Granville Waiters? Is he still Granville. in the middle? Yeah, <laughs> Whis- still- whispering Bill. Yeah, I mean, so as you can see, I'm not keeping up on the NBA. No, I, no so I, I don't can care. Tell. But I, I'd I'd like to see you on. I'd like to see ten games for Billy Donovan, ten games for Amy Jacobson. Let's see who compiles okay. the best record. I know when to call timeouts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I've tracked some great inbound passes under the basket. Well, it's time for the, you know, the, the level girls to have an extended box, run. Stack, stack. Yeah, okay. No, but I've got different ones, too. Yeah. The J. I got the J. Nobody knows about the J. Yeah. and the, That's how we won. And we beat, well, we almost beat Bell. Right. And you fit the sixth grade girls basketball at Blaine, but we tried. Yeah, you're going to be doing all these gesticulations, <laughs> and then Artis Gilmore is going to be on the court looking at you like, what are you talking about, chick? <laughs> We're going to run yeah. a motion offense, guys. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> John Paxson's going to be like, come on, just give me the ball in the wing. Mike and Plano. Hey, guys. Uh, I thought that uh, statement by Adam Silver was weird because the NBA, through their uh, media partners at ESPN and TNT and NBA TV, all, all the networks, they've been spending like the last two to three years trying to prop up Becky Hammond to be the first NBA head coach. I don't know who that is. She's uh, well. Well, she was a successful uh, WNBA player, and then she ended up actually being an assistant coach in the uh, NBA under Greg Popovich. Of course, it was under Greg Popovich. Of course, it was under Greg Popovich. I was about to say, yeah, of course, Popovich being super woke, and you know, same with Steve Curry comes from that tree, and uh, he's super woke. But you know, of course, she she bought into the program. But the thing is, is Popovich? I don't know. He's close to eighty years old, but he refuses to retire. So, like, all these people, they've been trying to groom up to replace them. Tim Duncan, her, a bunch of other people. They they just up and left. And then, same with her um, after last year. She up and left to go back to the WNBA and coach the uh, Las Vegas Aces. Mm-hmm. All right. We're following this way too closely, Mike. I just have to tell you. 
Yeah. But, um, you know, look, I it, I don't know. I think she's back. I still think you want to. WNBA. You know, she is? Oh. Yeah, head coach of the Las Vegas Aces. Yeah, that's what he just said. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yes. yeah Mike in Plano, he's, he's on He it. knows. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, um, Adam Silver probably has returned to his home planet now, so there's not much to talk about. But I just thought I'd. Explore oh. that, especially since you coach. Yeah, this is some, you know, how I coach. And also, me. all the parents out there with kids, you know, like boys, you want your, you know, you want your varsity football team to be uh, coached by, uh, like, Goldie Hawn, like mm-hmm. Wildcats. Outside the lines obtained practice video showing exactly how far she has gone to motivate her players. Cursing at them. I that ponytail off. Throwing basketball. Shooting t-shirt guns. Throwing bricks at them. Who is that, Roseanne Barr? No, uh, McCarthy. Oh, Melissa That's, McCarthy. Melissa McCarthy yeah. pretending to be a basketball coach. It was, it was good back in the day. Yeah, Roseanne Barr lookalike. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. This is a full-blown four-alarm holiday emergency here. On AM560. We're going to have the hap, hap, happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with Danny and K. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Merry Christmas. On AM560. Ho, ho, ho. The Answer. Dan and Amy, top of the morning. Uh, we are still taking uh, suggestions. We'll sprinkle them in through this morning's program for the snowplow naming contest that Entertainer-in-Chief Mayor Triple Threat has launched here to keep it fun and exciting for us uh, Chicago Denizens, or you Chicago Denizens, I should say. Uh, and um, you need to rub it in. I think Get Whitey, is, um, which was my fr- a suggestion of a friend of mine, is the leader in the clubhouse. But there's six winners because there's six plows that need to be named. So there's there are six, many other opportunities. Oh, excuse me. There's six snowplow districts. Did you know that? I do in now. <laughs> yeah. And more importantly, I know you don't care, but here's a uh, voicemails. We're taking voicemails too. Uh, this is Mike on the Southwest side. Hello, this is Mike in the Southwest suburbs. And my name for the snowplow trucks is Soylent Scooper. Thank you. Soylent Scooper. So, mm. Soylent Snow is people. It's people. Okay. Dirty people. All right. Um, here's another one. This is a little, I hope this is uh, okay. Hey, this is just uh, calling in to uh, respond to the uh, snowplow. Um, it would be a picture of Lori Lightfoot, and then underneath the caption would say, does this ass make my plow look big? That's not only good or okay, it's outstanding. Yeah. All right. I don't think that's going to pass the uh, no. blue ribbon panel that's been constructed to review these submissions, but okay. And if you put an acronym in, you have to explain what the acronym is. It's exact, of course. Because oh, sure, they don't want anything, you know, no defamation of Chicago. Right. We of want it to Chicago to look bad. Uh, I mean, like right. last night, real quick, we had a, a horrible. Well, we had a shooting at on top of Mariano's. The guy, two guys, pull up. They plugged thirty bullets into this guy. Thirty. Mm-hmm. I mean, major. And people are still. No, it's like now it was like I was there. I know. Are you feeling? Yeah. Feel the yeah. breeze. And people kiss. They didn't shut down Mariano's. People just kept shopping and. Walking their no, they're not cards shooting that. They're not shooting next them. to the car. Look, they, they look, oh, and then we'll go to their car with their cards. And they got a Christmas dinner to make. <laughs> so I understand. Oh, my God. Uh, okay. All right. Let's get to uh, more important topics. Cause nobody cares about violent crime in Chicago, so why pay much attention to it? We care about things, important things like naming snowplows. Um, we brought you the story last week of the uh, student at York High School 
uh, a young man with Down syndrome who was uh, rousted in the bathroom there. And uh, the disappointing response from the school board, from the parents of the kids who uh, rousted him, from um, just the Elmhurst community, generally speaking. Well, this is a bit more of a problem than maybe people want to admit how barbaric we've become, as I've been saying, for quite some time, you know, based on the data, but I know, you know, data isn't compelling. Uh, Maybe based on stories like what you saw at York High School and what you're seeing at Garrison School in Jacksonville, Illinois, which is, uh, I think I said Southern Illinois. Now I'm doing it, getting too Chicago-centric. West Central Illinois. West Central, yes. Uh, Morgan County. uh, Garrison School. Administrators at Garrison School call the police to report student misbehavior every other day on average. And because staff members regularly press charges against the children, some as young as nine, officers have arrested more than 100 times, arrested students more than 100 times in the last five years, according to this investigation that was done by the Tribune and ProPublica, those two uh, outlets accidentally stumbling into actual journalism. I'm a bit stunned. Congratulations on this rare occurrence. A garrison is a a school for children with unique abilities. The students enrolled uh, each year at garrison have severe emotional or behavioral disabilities that keep them from succeeding at previous, that have kept them from succeeding at previous schools. Some have been diagnosed with autism, ADHD, or other disorders. Many have experienced horrifying trauma, including sexual abuse, the death of parents, the incarceration of family members, Uh, This according to interviews with both families and school employees. Um, Getting arrested? A nine-year-old? Arrested students more than 100 times in the last five years, according to this investigation. Um, And just by comparison, getting arrested for behavior at school, this report offers, is not inevitable for students with such challenges. There are about 60 similar public education schools across Illinois. But none comes anywhere close to Garrison in their number of student arrests. So this is supposed to be a therapeutic option for students that addresses their particular needs. And instead, it's criminalizing kids with disabilities. What? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. I think we're taking, well, I should say, I thought we were uh, you know, trying to um, eliminate the so-called school-to-prison pipeline. Now, that's just with kids that don't have any diagnosed disorder or uh, disability, but are just um, knowingly violative of, of you know, civil behavior in school uh, or out of school, for that matter. Um, the last five years, hundred uh, arrested students more than a hundred times. The only school um, has the, in the the only school that in, in that part of the state has fewer than sixty five students in most years. Sixty five students. You're calling police every day. There's been more than a hundred arrests made in the last five years. What the hell is going it, on there? Sounds like they should get a substation there if they're arresting that many kids. Um, sounds like they need new leadership of that school or yeah. more to the point, let's not wait for that because that's what we do. Protect the system, protect the school. No, let's uh, get kids out of that school. This is where 
opportunity scholarships come in for kids with unique abilities, just as the Illinois tax credit scholarships are provided for um, uh, you know kids with uh, gift, the gifted kids, as well as just kid, kids generally in terrible schools that haven't that don't do a very good job of providing educational opportunities. Well, here in lies the rub. We still have a problem here, and you can talk about IEPs all day long, but. If okay. you don't have the adults in charge of the schools, if you have the adults in charge of schools treating every um, outburst or every behavioral disruption with kids who have these sorts of challenges, then uh, you're not going to be acting. You're not. I mean, you're not going to be providing this therapeutic option that is advertised. So well, get them uh, out. I mean, as it stands right now, the school administrators are calling the police on kids with disabilities every other day. Yeah, right. That's no way, I mean, that's no way to, they're doing something wrong then. Something needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. Tracy Fair is the director of the Special Education District. Um, she said there are few options for private placement. Well, let's find them. School workers deal with challenging behavior from garrison students every day. Well, right, I know, you sign up for it. Well, you You know that these are kids that have unique challenges, unique abilities, and so they need a unique environment. Um, She said in a written response, there are consequences to their behavior. This behavior would not be tolerated anywhere else in the community. Well, uh, actually, not that it would be tolerated, but you also wouldn't be held criminally criminally liable for um, some behavior if you can't form the requisite intent to commit an act of violence. or an act of disruption of some sort that would technically be violative of the law, you you still have to look at the person, Miss Fair. The students were not, as she said, um, call police only when students are being physically aggressive in response to ongoing misbehavior, but records detail multiple instances when staff called police because students were being disobedient, spraying water, punching a desk, or damaging a file cabinet, for example. The uh, director of the special ed district there said, the students were still not calming down, so police arrested them. Jeez. You want police arresting pre-adolescents, pre-adolescent kids with particular challenges because they're not calming down? Well, maybe you need people that are better at dealing with and, and aiding kids who have special needs. Maybe that's what the problem is here. Golly gee, I would think this is obvious. And we'd love to hear from any special ed teachers out there, too. 312-642-5600, Turnkey, Depro, Ancelin. They said this ProPublica Tribune investigation that there's 60 similar schools across Illinois, but none of them come close to the number of student arrests. Tim and DeKalb, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning. I think you're both um, mistaken a bit. My, my, uh, I, I spoke before the school board of the high school at DeKalb. And it was because my wife has been attacked three times. We call the police on her attackers three times. And if you do not, if you not hold people accountable for crimes that they commit, then you're not doing anything for for anybody. I'm sorry. Is DeKalb so, High is, is DeKalb High School a high school for kids with special needs? Absolutely. And so she's there are diagnosed kids in in every school. I worked with I worked with kids for eighteen and a half years in in residential treatment. And when they when they when they shattered our jaws, broke out our teeth, smashed us with boards, and those kind of things, we did call the police. I called the police on on so many of those kids I couldn't even count them because crimes are different. Now, where are their therapists? 
this is if you want to blame anybody, blame the therapist, blame the people who are diagnosing these kids with ADD, ADHD, ODD, and then people like myself and my wife. We we have to be the victims of crime because the therapists are not doing anything. Where are they? They they come in and they talk to the kid for an hour, or they come and talk to them when they when they smack somebody upside the head with with you know some heavy object, and now that person is on workers' comp because they're injured. And this is a problem of therapists of psychology and psychiatry. This is not a problem of employees of a school. Well, you should not be the victim of any crime. Well, of, of, of course, not what they're being employed for. Of course, of course, of course. So, but however, um, the you uh, I mean the, the the comments like I just read from the the, the district administrator there. Um, uh, raise some additional concerns about just exactly how well trained these individuals are, and to the extent that there are people that have uh, diagnosed conditions where they could be violent, then yeah, of course, then the school should have um, people there to provide for the safety of teachers and and uh, you know other yeah. adults that are providing instruction and they care. Do. Right. They do. They're called resource officers or police officers that have to be in the school to protect the staff from being attacked, battered, and beaten and by by the students. Come on now, man. This yeah, is yeah, this yeah, is yeah, yeah. Psychology's but, but, problem. Well, well, I'm not. I'm not. Dis- I'm not necessarily disagreeing. I mean, with the, that that uh, improper diagnoses may be part of the problem, but I still have a problem with. First of all, the school that is an outlier with respect to all the other schools. So these 65 kids in Jacksonville are so much different than the kids in every other school in the state? They're not. Some, no. Some schools demand that you not call the police when you're assaulted and battered or attacked. They demand it. So people are terrified to get terminated. I worked at a place that once that I was, I was, I was punched in the face by a kid. I determined to, to call the police for a police report. Remember, the policeman decides what to do. And everybody should call a, should, should file a police report when they're a victim of violence. Every single person. But when you're talking about violence, to go unreported. When you're talking about uh, kids, pre-adolescent kids who have, um, uh, you know, in some cases, severe disabilities, how would you handle that? How would you handle them? They wouldn't be in a public school. They would be in a therapeutic school where the therapist could take care of them and get them through their their troubled pre-adolescent and adolescent and then young adult world without causing victims of their crime. Well, I understand that, and I'm fine with that, but there, but this is advertised, the school in Jacksonville we're talking about is advertised as a therapeutic option for these kids. Well, I never went to work thinking I was going to have to be a combatant, so I never learned jujitsu or taekwondo or, or any other, other self-defense techniques other than CPI, TCI, and all those other things they teach you that do not work. Yeah. Those, are, you know, those, are, those datas don't work, because when the kids become... Well, actually, when you just say, please, will you not watch this stuff on your computer? Will you, get, will you please be quiet? Will you not disrupt the class? You get attacked and battered. That's just intolerable. Something has to happen where those kids are removed from, from disrupting the vast majority of good students in the school and, and decent teachers. they got to go. Well, I agree with that. Thanks for the call, Tim, and the perspective. I agree with that, um, and, I, and I sort of was mocking the eliminate the school to prison pipeline restorative justice gobbledygook of the left in charge of these schools and school districts we saw that play out in horrible fashion in at parkland didn't we oh yeah um so i'm i'm completely in agreement about that um i find it interesting though and i'm not talking about tim specifically but you know this is another instance where all the adults are interested Protect the shield. Protect the system. Don't protect 
the kids, and we talk about a lot, and also don't protect some of the adults that um, are abused by students. And it, I, I know some of this is shocking, and I know that it happens as well. But there has to be a, a balance that could be achieved. Or, as I said before, opportunity scholarships for schools that want to serve uh, children like uh, are at this school in Jacksonville. Uh, you don't want to handle it, you can't handle it, then um, let's provide the underwriting to send these kids to a school that will, will actually be a therapeutic option for these children as they are advertised to be. I mean, some of these you know, alleged crimes, a 10-year-old threw a shoe at a teacher, another time a 15-year-old threw a desk at a teacher, and another time a 15-year-old boy uh, was arrested for aggravated battery after he pushed the teacher to the ground. Yeah, I mean, that, the pushing a teacher to the ground, that's certainly a problem, yeah. and you have to have an environment where, as Tim was saying, <laughs> where the adults and the teachers are safe, too. Um, so, I, you know, it seems to me that it's just like we're, we're conceiving of this wrong. We're not, we're not doing that balancing such that um, the environment is safe for the instructors and you have competent therapists that are working with these kids to bring them along um, and also still abiding our responsibilities to these kids to uh, help them develop socially, emotionally, intellectually to their fullest potential as well. So I don't think it's an either or. And and again, um, this Jacksonville school is such an outlier. I think they have a lot more explaining to do. Uh, John in Naperville, you're in Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, with all due respect, you and Amy are way over your skis on this one. I've worked uh-huh. at these schools, and I'm telling you, it goes underreported. The question shouldn't be, why is this one reporting so many? It should be, why aren't the schools reporting more? You know, think of it this way. There's no police record on these kids. They go out and buy a gun, a.k.a. Uh, some of these mass shooters. You guys really, If you guys really want to know, volunteer at some of these schools for a week and then come back and report. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the call, John. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll walk past the uh, We don't know because we're not there. I'll walk past the hi hats. My sisters are both special ed teachers. The, 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 we're, we're talking about kids. I'm not talking about kids that are we're, improperly diagnosed as ADHD to uh, absolve them from violent behavior when they know what they're doing is wrong. I'm talking about kids who um, don't have the mental capacity to know right from wrong. Um, they can't uh, make a formulation to commit a crime. So, I mean, there are gradations here in terms of the kids we're talking about. The, the Parkland school shooter is one case, and some of these other kids that have severe disabilities are other cases and they need to be treated individually rather than categorically. And that's why I say, I don't think the balance is here. You, you've been in schools or Tim's been in schools. He's seen terrible things happen. He's had terrible things happen to him. I can see how that would influence your judgment, but there are still these responsibilities we have to abide. We should abide. And so how do you want to do that? And so I say again, okay. Um, I don't want to force anybody to do anything. So let's provide the resources, as I said, to provide the scholarships, the same sort of scholarships that are provided through the tax credit scholarship program in Illinois, so that kids and families have the resources to select their school and the schools, these these schools that have a therapeutic orientation, are interested. They're welcoming. They want to take on the challenge. Maybe 
changing the way that uh, that the students flow and who gets to make spending decisions will change the system for the betterment of the adults and the kids alike. Uh, Bill, Cape Coral, Florida. Hi. No, I don't understand why the teachers didn't call the psychiatrist. Why are they? Well, that's the new plan to call it when there's a disturbance. You call it the psychiatrist, not the police. Yeah. So why? That's their own. That's their own uh, program that they came up with. So they should call the psychiatrist. The police are there to lock people up. So. Thanks for the call, Bill. Well, they have these, you know, separation rooms, and even that, you know, there's one teacher who the kid spit on her face. Landed on her glasses and her shirt, so then she called the police after that. So, I mean... So these separation rooms that they have oh, to try to calm them down are not working. Well, um, I, I, it's one instance. I don't know. But, but but what's your other plan? Your other plan is to what? Um, put them in prison for life? Have them you know, build up a record of um, repeat violent offenses or, or uh, misdemeanor felony convictions. First of all, as I said before, in, in some of these cases, you're not going to be able to convict. Prosecutor's not going to charge because they can't convict. Because you can't, you don't have intent. So um, what do you want to do other than say it's all this way or it's all that way? You never get to like, what do you want to do? How should we change the system then? You don't like it. Uh, obviously, the parents of some of these kids don't like it. So what do you want to do? Kathy and Joliet. Hey, good morning. I'm a special educator of 20 years. and worked at therapeutic day schools with some really violent kids from the inner city. And there's so many layers here, Dan and Amy, that you really can't target it to one thing. And our illustrious governor removed the uh, restraint and isolation components for managing behaviors. So now you 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 evacuate the classroom when these kids are throwing desks and grabbing handfuls of books and whipping them across the room like they're teacups. And uh, it can be a very dangerous situation. Yeah, well, uh, I, and, 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 and I'm not saying, look, I mean, I'm, I'm for mainstreaming kids with unique abilities, but not to the point of endangering other kids. So, I mean, these are, this is, this is the problem with the system. Generally speaking, we don't have judgment. We don't have adults making uh, balanced decisions, making informed judgment calls. We have rules, we have policies and procedures. We're not allowed to think. And with something like this, as you're pointing out, Kathy, where every kid's situation is unique, every kid presents unique opportunities and challenges, then you've got to tailor your approach to the kid. And we just don't seem capable of doing that, or at least many of us don't. Well, and you do have to tailor it because there's 14 categories for diagnoses in special education. Those diagnoses are made by the school psychologist. Very few, if any, districts in Illinois have an on-staff psychiatrist. Let's remember, a psychiatrist is an MD, and a psychologist is, you know, a shade above a counselor. Right. So our, our, our psychologists don't counsel kids. Our social workers counsel them. And, you know, you have a debriefing, and you have, you know, all of that. But, you know, there's some systemic things that can't be overcome in a school setting. Uh, certainly there's medications that can help manage some of these explosive behaviors that are very dangerous. I know I've had uh, four surgeries because of being attacked by kids. Oh. And uh, I just, you know, you have to pick the hill you're going to die on with these kids, you know, because they'll, they'll advance at the drop of a hat because they can, and they know they can. You know, back in the day, you used to be able to escort them with two people, hands-on, their wrists and arms and walk them to the isolation room. 
where they can de-escalate and think about what they did. You can't do that anymore. And yeah. if you do do it, yeah. you have to fill out a boatload of paperwork. So mm-hmm. it's a very, very multidimensional, and it's a slippery slope. So Thanks for the call, Kat. And, and each it. kid that's arrested, they're taken to the police station. One, a 10-year-old boy who was there waiting for his mom, it's, they either wait for an adult to pick him up or officers take them home after school. And that's traumatic. You know, that's what some of the parents were complaining that my kid was bawling. He was freaking out when she picked him up after he was booked at the jail and he was 10. Well, I mean, I see this for, like, to scare a kid straight if the kid <laughs> can be scared straight. Right, but I mean, it's I, I not get working. that, but, but that, that's not, but right, but that's not like a systemic approach, it doesn't seem. That's the issue. Time now for another reason why Dan Puff is single. Yeah, uh, it turns out the laws of attraction, not just a terrible rom-com with Pierce Brosnan and Julianne Moore. The real laws. The real science. Dan Airely is a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University. And here's the unfortunate truth that explains why I'm single. I have two (laughs) terrible qualities. And I love your deeper voice when you're explaining this. Very sultry, very pajama gram duck. In a very nearly nude. (laughs) Hey, buy one, get one free. Professor Airely, all of us, regardless of our own physical attractiveness, tend to view the same people as attractive or unattractive. In other words, the people who rate um, someone uh, nine are the same. This, 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 uh, people who are nine who rate someone a nine, people who are four also rate that same person a nine. Everybody sees who's attractive and who isn't. It's, it's not. It's not I mean, like you're looking at a ten. Yes. Okay, Bo Derek. <laughs> uh huh. Um, so they Just looked. Kidding. These uh, researchers at Duke. Yeah. This is what you. This you're is pay- from Duke. You're paying seventy grand Duke. for this guy to have a job at Duke to do this. They looked at um, all these like thousands of photos at Hot or Not and the ratings. Oh. Website Hot or Not. Are we gonna play Hot or Not? No. Jug bag Thursday. Oh. No. No. Christmas week. It, the um, this was gold. This uh, hot or not site for these researchers. Yeah, they looked. Um, they mined the data for the website for data seeking to find if a person's attractiveness affected how they rated others. And as as I was suggesting, no, it's a clear manifestation of what scientists call assortive mating. The idea is that you, if you took everybody and you rank them on how attractive they are, the most attractive would date the most attractive, the middle attractive would basically date the middle, and the low would date the low. Yeah, that makes sense. Furthermore, the professor found that the more unattractive people are, the less they value physical attractiveness and potential mates. They focus on emotional characteristics like kindness or sense of humor or dedication. But, not the flip side... Studies suggest attractive people tend to have shorter and less satisfying relationships, perhaps because they overvalue attractiveness in their partners while overlooking other valuable traits like mm-hmm. humor, like kindness. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so here's, um, I mean, and, and t- tell me if I'm wrong here. I mean, I know there are people that men who outkick their coverage. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that's, but I, the, the uh, X factor there. They've got very big wallets to stand on. Bingo. Thank you. Yes. 
Bingo. You've got big mansions. And so here's wonderful the, cars. Here's the problem if this is true and this is just science. Oh. Don't hate the science. Okay, Dr. Fauci. So I'm unattractive, but I'm vain. So I'm. Oh, that's the worst one to be. Yeah, exactly. That, we all know somebody right? like that. And I don't have the money to make up for the unattractiveness to get to the attractive people. Yeah, that's a bit of a problem. So I'm 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 in another space. I'm in God's little acre between the rock and the hard place. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm supposed to be dating low, but I want to date high, but I don't have the money to date high. <laughs> Not yet. I'm working on it. It's your work in progress. Maybe you could rent a fancy car when you take him out on the date. But yeah, that but, would be kind of yeah, but then the, but that's, mis- that'd be fraud. Yeah, and, and it'll be quickly found out. I gotta get this Lamborghini back by eleven. <laughs> Just say your other car was ruined in the hurricane. I mean, is that that I mean, about sums up. That's that sums the whole so thing true. up. Sums the whole thing up. So thank you, Duke University. Now I understand. <laughs> I have to look at qualities like kindness, dedication. <laughs> I got that. Sucks. John Portage Park. Hi, Dan and Amy. Good morning. I'd like to give my own ratings as well. This isn't really mine. It was ours in high school. There's the one to ten is too complicated because we don't know what's the difference between a five and a six, a three and a four. You get it. A eight or a nine. So ours was one to three. One you would never date. Two you would date, but it wouldn't be serious. And three you would change your life. I mean, go to mass every day, go to whatever, just to get with her, you know? Uh-huh. That, wait, wait, that wait, 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 repeat? repeat that again. One, two, three. Three is you change your life, you go to mass. You do, you do, no, do not, something as extreme not, as going to mass to please her. Um, but No, no, not else? just mass. Yeah, yeah, well, Whatever. It. You change your life, that's three. Two is what? Um, two is it would be, you you date her, but, you know, date her. You would... Data, but it wouldn't be serious. One never. Okay, and and so it's, and how it's, did it go for you? It's simple. It really worked well. I've been married for forty-two years. All right. High, huh. high school, high school sweetheart. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Thanks. I changed my life, Dan. Thanks for the call, John. I'm a, See, he's trying to help I you can't change your life. It was high school sweethearts. He he was he was at an age where he could change. Did you have a high school sweetheart? Oh, no, wait, you didn't even go to prom. I never went to a dance. Oh, you didn't even go to turnabout or homecoming or... No. You know why? <laughs> why? Because I was the ugly guy waiting for the hot chick to ask me to turnabout, and it's not going to happen. <laughs> I certainly didn't have money in high school. People don't realize that you were five foot two your freshman year. Yeah, I was. Mm-hmm. What's going on, man? Now I'm five foot two, 280. Then I was five two, five two and 110. <laughs> no, you're six feet, right? Mm-hmm. Ish. Yeah, I'm starting to shrink. So that's another problem I have. I'm on oh, the clock. You got, oh, that's right. You're, you're past the 50 mark. Yeah. If you do Pilates, it should lengthen you. I am. I am doing Pilates, yeah. Okay. I'm trying to stretch these tired old bones. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, this other thing I wanted to get to, too. I know this is going to be some uh, guilty pleasure watching stuff for you. Um, I'm, I teased it. I want my husband to date younger women. I feel like life should be lived. So gross. That's um, Maria Foster. She turned 40. She broke out news to her husband, Michael. She wanted to see other people, and she wanted him to do the same thing. And that produced a show called Love for the Ages. Who says our culture is rotting? Uh, The show focused on three middle-aged, long-time couples 
at a crossroads. Husbands and wives are given the opportunity to date people in their 20s and live with them for a full month. At the end of the experience, they decide whether they want to reunite with their spouse or move on to the 20-something. So 40s and 20s. And this is on Peacock. This is NBC. Yeah, of course. Quality programming. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Would anybody take him back after he went and did that? Well, do you want to come back? I mean, I mean, why would you do that to your marriage? Um, well, they're they're obviously not fanatics about marriage. <laughs> That's all. Oh, they have these open marriages, so they can yeah do what they want. What's that? We need to get the the hot versus crazy thing going yeah, there too. We need the, the where's the hot versus crazy guy? Couldn't somebody help us out? All right, well, well, Justin's not here because today's Justin's birthday, so he took the day off. I know. Roll your eyes. Who takes the birthday off? Well, how old Justin is he? Justin Kosick. He's 12? No, he's 25. Does he have 25. an ice cream party? <laughs> Who takes their birthday off? What? Come on. I know. Well, There's kids today. Well, he wanted to sleep in. I, You know, he's a good... I, he, I, no. I love course. that kid. Of course. He can... Hey, do whatever he wants. You know what? Right. Don't, do whatever don't he wants. Don't shame him. I don't, you know... Don't day off shame him. I know how hard, how hard it is to find competent people these days. He can do whatever he wants. It's a, you know, open, open road for him. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. I want Christmas. Just give me playing baby Jesus lying in a manger Christmas. On AM 560, The Answer. Dan and Amy, uh, talking about why Dan Proft is single and the laws of attraction. Like attracts like at the same hotness level. But now there's a flip side to that, too. Uh, and that's the hot versus crazy matrix that... Um, was developed by uh, this enlightened gentleman. Uh, he posted to YouTube. This is a few years old now, but it's but always it's a, good. It's, it's always good to revisit. I mean, it's just the rules of the road. Okay, so this is the universal hot crazy matrix. It's everything a young man needs to know about women. Um, I've developed this on my own over 46 years of living on the earth. So above an eight hot, and between about a seven and a five crazy, this is your wife zone. Okay, above the danger zone, above the uh, above the crazy line, we have the danger zone. This is your redheads, your strippers, anyone named Tiffany. Right. Yeah. Um, this is hairdressers. This is where this is where your car gets keyed. You get a bunny in the pot. Uh, your tires get slashed, and you wind up in jail. Right. And then if you get uh, if you're, oh, that's if, great. If, if you think you're like above, you're in the uh, ab- ab- like the a marriage zone, uh-huh. you know, in terms of hotness, and then you're below the threshold for crazy, then you're dating a dude. Oh, that's that's, that's yeah. You gotta be care- you gotta be careful if you're like uh, you know above the threshold for hotness but below it for crazy, then you're probably dating a dude. So there's a, there's a lot to and women are offended by that. I think that's hysterical because you know what? There's a lot of truth to that, don't you think? The, the hot, hot crazy, hot, the hot crazy, yeah, yeah. yeah they they're inversely, pro- you know, they they uh, are inversely proportional, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. By the way, something another dynamic that's at play here, though, too. I wanted to mention since we we're talking about relationships, which is my wheelhouse. Love of all ages. Yeah, we'll get to it. All right. Uh, the uh, percentage of people that are staying married but living alone. Well, oh, that's a huge. People don't realize that so many couples don't live together. The percentage of populations married declined between 2000 and 2019, but the percentage of married couples who live apart rose by 25% during that same time period. Yeah, it's a way to keep your marriage going. And in 2021, it started to rise again. Yeah. 
get your own place, have your own life. Well, during COVID too. Married. When, mm. uh, well, can I tell you how many of my friends or acquaintances got divorced because of COVID? Because their husbands traveled their entire marriage four or five days a week, and then they were home with the family for the first time in their lives. Five of them got divorced that I know of. Five. Because they realized, uh-uh, I'm not living like this. It's like retail. You learn to really hate people <laughs> if they're in your presence all the time. <laughs> That's how you really learn to hate people if, if he's at home. The, right. the old man's at home. Uh, Dave Wakanda, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, guys. I want to tell you, Dan, I'm not gay, but you're one hunk of a man. Your only flaw is you got Thank no you. Butt. What are you talking about? You know, somebody else has said that. I just said I have no butt. Thanks for the call, David. I appreciate that. And I take that, you know, in a very platonic sense. Well, I don't, I don't, that's not, that's not true. Well, but this lady came up to you at the Freedom Summit Air We Breathe, and we was checking your butt out, and then all, she made this declarative statement, Dan, you have no butt. What I, happened to your butt? And she's looking around the room as if you left your butt somewhere else in the room. It's because you've lost a lot of weight and you don't have a butt. I haven't lost, I, first of all, I haven't lost that, like... Yes, everybody... Were lost you? That, lost that, like I was like 400 pounds. <laughs> like I was like a Springer Rescue or something. It's so ridiculous. Number one, number, I, I mean, I can't, you know, I don't know. I think it's... Can I put a cup of coffee on that bad boy? Yeah, I mean it's not Kardashian, show? but I mean it's 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 respectable. This is real. Is that what you're saying? It's all all original equipment. Uh huh. I don't know. I think it's funny. Do you I feel also, sexually also, objectified also, when people well, I, stare at your body parts like that? I'm concerned that mm. Dave from Wakanda has an opinion about my butt. Actually, well, why don't we probe him more? Oh. Hmm. No. That's really bad. Right. Excuse me. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Merry Christmas. On AM 560. Ho, ho, ho. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, so on the occasion of the uh, Jan 6 Star Chambers criminal referrals yesterday, White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre mm. had this to say. What we saw on January 6th was the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. And uh, the president has been very clear. Our democracy continues and remains under threat, and we all have a, have a part to protect it. Uh, the committee has been doing important bipartisan work to get <laughs> yeah. to the truth of yeah. what happened on that very day. Really, more greatest threat to our democracy since the Civil War. Greatest. I mean, it's just uh, so over the top, you know. When you uh, engage in those sort of over-the-top hysterics, it normally is indicative that your underlying argument or case isn't that strong. And I think that's certainly the case here. I mean, what a slap in the face to everyone who lost a loved one on 9-11 or at Pearl Harbor. Or, I mean, I know the hyperbole. This is, you know, they, they have to make this the biggest thing since the Civil War. Well, it's... Um, you know, again, something they've extended. Uh, they've extended this run as long as they could. It felt like it went on longer than cats, but not exactly. And Jonathan Turley, he he summed it up better, saying, you know, Mar-a-Lago is a bigger deal. His raid on Mar-a-Lago, bigger deal than this. The more serious threat is coming from Mar-a-Lago, not January sixth. Uh, and I think that's still the case. I think if you if you see this final meeting, you get the feeling of sort of a group of actors that refuse to leave the stage. I mean, you've got you know a, a bunch of folks that are repeating exactly what they have said now in repeated hearings, right. and each time they've they've said we're going to be bringing in some new powerful evidence, and then they repeat it. 
Um, you need more than that uh, for a prosecution. You need more than mere repetition. We have a smoking gun. We have a smoking gun. We can't let you see the smoking gun. Russian collusion, J6. It's the same game. Uh, here's the thing, though. Will there be pressure from Democrats like those on the J6 star chamber on Jack Smith, the special counsel that's been appointed to investigate Trump to pursue the uh, pursue indictments along the lines of their criminal referrals? Because it could it be the case that uh, these criminal referrals and any subsequent indictment of Trump related to January 6th would propel Trump to the nomination in 2024, and that's what they really want. And if that's so, would somebody like Jack Smith and Merrick Garland's Justice Department go along with it? Hmm. For more on all this palace intrigue, please to be joined by Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com, author of January 6th, How Democrats Use the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror Against the Political Right. Julie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Thanks for having me on. What, what do you think about the uh, the end game for uh, the, the not just the J six Star Chamber members, but the Democrats here? They want Trump to be the nominee. I think that's fairly clear. And so, isn't indicting him and potentially seeing him uh, uh, acquitted on these uh, trumped up charges, if you will? That would uh, that would rally the faithful to Donald Trump and and bring him to the nomination, despite uh, all of the struggles he's having at present. You know, I'm not so sure. I think that's one view to entertain. But look, this is the culmination of now more than six years of the base, the Democrats, the national security apparatus promising that they were going to put Donald Trump in handcuffs. And we have all the iterations of it, the Mueller probe, the impeachments, et cetera. Um, but this is what they have promised the base, and they had to deliver something. Now, I'm going to disagree with Jonathan Turley, and I respect him, but he has not been watching what's happening in these D.C. courtrooms related to the prosecution of now more than 900 Americans for January 6th. The idea that you need to provide evidence and really support any of these counts or charges is ridiculous. The D.C. District Court is nothing but a rubber stamp for the DOJ. You have jury pools that are selected from the city that voted 93% for Joe Biden. I mean, this is a banana republic type court and legal system in D.C. They will get indictments from a grand jury in D.C. They will go before a D.C. district court judge. Even his own appointees, if he gets there, uh, will sign off on whatever DOJ puts in front of them. And they'll go to a jury pool that has nothing but contempt for Donald Trump and his supporters. So I'm not so sure that the idea, the old legal system that we expect in America simply does not exist in our nation's capital. So you think, so, Trump, you think Trump gets indicted? You think they're going to pursue an indictment and because of, as you just said, the jury pool, that um, it's not beyond the realm that they get a conviction? DOJ has a near-perfect record. Now, trials started in March, a near-perfect record. They have guilty convictions for every defendant on nearly every single count um, now for about 20, 25 or so defendants. In one case, a juror joked that it took longer for them to order lunch than to find the defendant guilty. And this includes the extremely vague 
not applicable obstruction of an official proceeding count, which is one of the referrals that the committee made yesterday against Donald Trump. And I have but, but, for months. Go ahead. Uh, but, but I mean, just that I mean, I, I, I stipulate to what you said, but a Donald Trump trial on these charges would be so qualitatively wow. different. I mean, that would that would dwarf OJ in terms of uh, fixated public and. Um, it would become sort of a referendum uh, leading up to the 2024 election. And so, I mean, so the standards and the pressure and the scrutiny, I mean, it just worlds apart from some of these other people who've been charged in, uh, have, uh, with committing crimes around January 6th. Well, I, I wish you were right. I mean, I know you're an attorney and I know that you're taught to think a certain way. And we as Americans expect our legal and judicial system to function in a certain way. What I'm telling you is that simply does not exist in the D.C. District Court, in the D.C. Circuit Court, at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, at the Washington field, FBI Field Office, at this DOJ run by Merrick Garland, Nisa Monaco, Matthew Graves. I have watched this, as you know, day to day. There is no way you would have a jury pool or a grand jury salivating at the opportunity to sign off on criminal indictments against Donald Trump. Now, the only thing is Trump would have a much stronger case to uh, succeed in a change of venue motion, which, by the way, have also been denied by every single judge. These cases, these trials should be, of course, moved out of Washington, D.C., but they've rejected every single one. He would only have a stronger case to move his trial out of D.C., not the least of which, Janine, is because every single judge has already assigned blame to Donald Trump for the events of January 6th. So then basically his 2024 campaign would be over? I mean, he can still run even if he is uh, indicted. I mean, I think he can still run if he is convicted. So, um, look, I'm not so sure the end game really has to do with 2024. I think it has to do with this bloodthirsty, revenge, retaliatory crusade that the left has been on since 2016 to put Donald Trump in jail. Um, For whatever reason, that's what they want. I'm not so sure... 2024 has some calculation, um, but I think the bigger one is they just want this man completely destroyed, bankrupted, and imprisoned. The Wall Street Journal uh, editorial board, you know, not big fans of Trump, nevertheless opined an indictment on the current evidence would be seen as political and it wouldn't help the country get past Mr. Trump or January 6th. Instead, it could plunge American democracy into a new and dangerous era. Um, I mean, I think that's the, the last part of that is right, particularly against the backdrop. I mean, you can't look at these things in a vacuum. Against the backdrop of these uh, Twitter files, for example, and every day we learn more about the FBI's bad behavior and collusion with uh, Twitter and other social media companies. Maybe maybe direction. Maybe it's a little bit even uh, worse than collusion, you could argue. Um, uh, you know, what do you think if what you suggest transpires does come to pass? What do you think uh, the landscape in America is going to look like into 2024? You know, I've talked about this about a lot of people who've covered this, and this is what the left wants. They want to plunge us further into a crisis in this country. They want to twist the knife into half the country. This was the whole point of helping to orchestrate January 6th, is to strike a fatal blow to the MAGA movement. It did not work. So they are going to do what leftists, what Marxists do, which is double down, triple down. 
and this is where we are headed with this indictment. Um, they it, Now, look, what I think eventually will happen, and I've suspected for months, I've predicted that the DOJ would indict Donald Trump. I think what they'll do is they'll drop the insurrection. So there's four criminal referrals, insurrection, basically perjury, conspiracy, and obstruction. I think they'll drop the insurrection one. That was for headlines, right? That was political for the base. But I think, based on what I've seen, and I predicted the obstruction and conspiracy charges would be the ones that they would tag Trump with. I think that those are the two strongest ones that they will. Now, they set up this Jack Smith special counsel, Jack Smith, who isn't even in the country. He's in the Netherlands recovering from knee surgery. Meanwhile, all they're doing, Dan and Amy, is moving the same prosecutors and investigators who've been on the January 6th case, including Trump, for almost two years moving them from Maine Justice or the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office into the special counsel's office. It's not independent. Same people, different letterhead. Uh, they know exactly what's happening. And you've got someone like Lisa Monaco, a longtime Obama loyalist, an architect of Russiagate, who is now the Deputy Attorney General. She's pulling the strings. Do you think she's really recusing herself from this? No way. Is that Mike Monaco's daughter? Oh, I know. I don't think, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't. So other people that are still arrested, I remember we had spoken earlier, you said that they're being held pretty much like political prisoners. Do you feel still, still feel the same way? I do, because you've got men accused of nonviolent crimes, um, charged with conspiracy or ridiculous, seditious conspiracy, who now are going on two years in prison, denied bail, uh, and their trials haven't even started yet. Some, some of them are just starting this week. Furthermore, aside from the ones who've been denied bail and are imprisoned under pretrial detention, you have absurd sentences coming out of the same D.C. court system I was talking about. Four and five years in jail for a conviction or plea on obstruction of an official proceeding, a post-Enron law that was supposed to deal with tampering with evidence of witnesses, not protesting, uh, political protesting. So they are criminalizing political dissent and political free speech. Uh, and that is as dangerous as what they are attempting to do to Donald Trump. Well, the other thing, too, and you would think that um, some officers of the court would uh, note this. To me, uh, I, I don't even care what the and I said this from the beginning. I don't care what the Jan 6 committee comes up with, because it will all be fruit of the poisonous tree if there's no procedural due process, if you're not going to buy those norms, then I don't care what you uh, produce. And those same people, I'm sure, if, for example, there was a a man charged with committing a violent crime in Chicago, if the same sort of procedural due process violations committed against Trump with this proceeding were committed against uh, a, a John Doe uh, urban dweller charged with a violent crime, they would be up in arms, and the case against that John Doe would be dismissed. And so, I mean, it seems to me more people should be saying, look, this is ends justify the means. This is anathema to due process. It is It runs completely afoul of our foundational principles, and um, uh, the, the these these members of that star chamber should be ashamed of themselves, and the Department of Justice should not be taking anything that they produced with any seriousness. Well, they will because they've been, of course, as you know, working hand in hand with this committee from the beginning. Uh, I mean, this is there are this is a partnership because they are the same Democrats, the same Obama loyalists, uh, the same part of the same regime. 
And so what I suspect, and now they were supposed to release the thousand plus witness transcripts with this report that's supposed to be coming out tomorrow. Benny Thompson said yesterday that some most of those would be released around Christmas time. Now we're looking at big transcripts. Remember Ray Epps, they interviewed him. We were told we were going to get his transcript. They're trying to bury all of this. Meanwhile, Dan and Amy, I did a quick search of the executive summary that was published yesterday, 160 pages. Here's a name that's missing, Christopher Ray, mm-hmm. the FBI director. So we still, His we, name wow. is not even mentioned. We, we, still, we don't even know if they interviewed him. Yeah, so we, we still, that's what was one of the other questions. We still don't have any sense of what the FBI's involvement was or was not on that day. Well, I mean, I I covered it a little bit in my book. I've covered it more extensively. But what's, what's happening is with these trials, especially the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, we know numerous FBI informants were run into these militia, alleged militias months before January 6th. What were they doing? Why did they not collect the intelligence? Or were they doing what they did in Whitmer Fednapping hoax, which is to provoke behavior? Remember, we couldn't get an answer from Jill Sanborn, the FBI official whether informants provoked or engaged in violent behavior on January 6th. Christopher Ray also could not answer the question whether FBI informants disguised as Trump supporters were inside the Capitol building before the breach on January 6th. We just keep getting this trickle and trickle of evidence that the FBI was far more involved. And the fact, Dan and Amy, if this committee did not interview Christopher Ray, any of his chief deputies or disclose any information about what the FBI failed to do or what they did do, that should raise a lot of red flags. Well, I got, I got to say, I mean, this whole thing, as you're describing, it sets up, you know, Donald Trump versus the deep state. And that's probably a pretty good uh, political position for him as a candidate for president of the United States and as a former president. I mean, I know there's going to be trials and tribulations here, as you're suggesting, but um, this is going to, this could get uh, very interesting and... Very wacky, very very, very quickly. Yeah. Very yeah. Ugly, yes. Yeah. Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com, author of Jane 6, January 6th, How Democrats Use the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror Against the Political Right. Julie, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Merry Christmas, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Santa's coming to town! Yeah! Oh my God! On AM560. Santa here? I know him! The answer. Insert Democrat Socialist here. Runs the Democratic House law for 30 plus years of running. He's promising this and he's stealing that. Where can you get that kind of money? He's using your house like his own piggy bank, gang, 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 gang. You ought to know by now. You can pay off your house here in Illinois, but you can never keep up with the taxes. Oh, how it's always been the plan to have a taxpayer pay, no doubt. Not a matter of if anymore, but when you're moving out. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. It's, uh, theme music means it's time for our weekly confab with Ted Dabrowski, president of wirepoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. Uh, oral arguments today in Kankakee on the Safety Act and Safety Act 2.0. They won the version passed by the General Assembly signed by Governor Jelly Belly last week, two weeks ago, whenever it was. 
Uh, the uh, prosecutors, uh, supermajority of county state prosecutors led by James Rowe of Kankakee County and James Glasgow of Will County are seeking to enjoin the implementation of the Pritzker Purge Law, which is otherwise scheduled to take effect on January 1. So we'll be tracking that. In D.C., a Democrat, Democrat, Denise Rucker Krepp, is criticizing her party. She's an advisory neighborhood commissioner for one of the D.C. wards. She's puzzled by her fellow party mates' push for a sweeping reform of the criminal code, which would reduce sentences and give those convicted of violent crimes like murder and rape opportunities for early release. Oh, you don't say. This is what she said. To be honest, I'm very puzzled why they're doing this. I I don't know why you would want to support the early release of rapists and murderers. And and that's why I sought help from Congress. I I believe that rapists should serve their full sentence. And if the D.C. Council wants to release them, fine. Let's go to Congress and seek their help. If only uh, Illinois could go to Congress and seek help. For more on this, let's start with the Safety Act. Ted, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Uh, some Democrats uh, in D.C. and some aldermen who otherwise were big fans of defunding the police and so forth, getting mugged by the reality of their positions. Well, I mean, they should get mugged. And, uh, you know, not enough mugging happens you know, of the right kind in, in Illinois and Chicago, right? Our, our legislators should be, and again, I'm not promoting violence, uh, but they should be mugged about, uh, you know, what's going to be happening on January 1st, if, uh, if, if the Supreme Court or the uh, Illinois courts don't step in and, and at least slow this down. But, um, yeah, you know, we're going to have the reality where we're going to do the experiment of the country by ending cash bail fully. Right. There's other states that have ended parts of cash bail, but we're going to be the first one to go full. And uh, when you look at it after after it's all said and done of the last three amendments that have been made to the law, we're going to end up having many more people. Uh, you know, these pretrial defendants, they're going to be out in the public many, many more than in the past. And, of course, that's the stated goal of, of the people who push this. But, uh, you know, our, our judges will have no choice but either to hold somebody or release them. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, crimes, some of them still dangerous, that uh, these people will be released uh, without any chance of putting bail on them or, you know, controlling them. So it'll be a uh, a much more dangerous world for us uh, starting January 1st. And you think about all those high schools who got rid of their resource officers, Chicago police, and this is what, you know, they had a walkout yesterday at Benito Juarez after four students were shot, two killed. And this is what everybody's saying. We we police. Not even security, just like police roaming around, you know. I think that would, uh, you know, make me feel safe. There's no security. I need police. You need police. Oh, walk out oh. for police after all yeah. the walkouts over the last couple of years against police. Interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, and, and again, it's, you know, it gets like we repeat ourselves over and over. Every poll that you've seen run in major cities, and we ran, ran with the wire points with uh, Real Clear, uh, people want more policing. You know, 85% of minorities want more policing. Now, they want better policing. They want, you know, the police to be you know, respectful, et cetera, but they want policing. And it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know how many times we can say it, and I don't know how many times the, the, the victims, right, they're the victims. When you think about it, this is where it all gets screwed up. you got guys like um, uh, Maurice West out in Rockford. You know, yeah. they keep forgetting who the victims are. The victims are the minorities in all these cities. That's the about, kids you know, don't want to murders. go to school. So, 
Ted. It's about criminals and victims, criminals and victims. It's such a simple thing, but they made it very unsimple because they're politicians. And that includes some in law enforcement, like at the chief level. This uh, story out of um, Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, A unidentified 33-year-old male entered the lobby of the Dearborn Police Department. He took out, he took a look around, and then he pulled out a handgun and attempted to fire the weapon at a uniformed officer behind the front desk. Well, you can imagine that didn't end well. Uh, The gun malfunctioned. By the time he tried to rectify it, he had been shot a couple of times and uh he died from his injuries but he, here here's the the what i'm talking boy i'm telling this story the police chief for dearborn michigan <coughs> Issa shahin or shaheen what i want to make very clear is that i extend my sincerest condolences to the individual who lost his life here what i know there'll be many questions you'll have in the coming days and i hope there are more answers and we're opening an investigation and blah 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 what? What? He tried to kill your officers. He came into a police station and attempted to open fire. I'm very sorry for his family's loss. I'm not. I mean, it, but it's it's um, significant of, or it's it's indica- indicative, I should say, of a mentality here at the policymaking level, whether it's politicians or their functionaries like police chiefs. Yeah, and, and many of those guys, and he. They probably would never normally say something like that, but they feel under such political pressure. Right. Of course, some might believe it, but they feel under such pressure that they got to say things that they would never otherwise say. Right. And when they say that, all they're doing is emboldening more people to do crime because we, we, we sound like we're so apologetic about, oh, sorry that you you know you tried to shoot the, the policeman. It's just, it's so backwards. And uh, well, let's see if our Illinois courts prevail in, in, in that kind of thinking. Well, Ted, I wanted to get your uh, opinion on this because there's a new handout in chicago now get this okay it's called esvf which stands for emergency supplemental victims fund chicago families who lose a loved one to gun violence not stabbings or a brick in the head or vehicular homicide gun violence only are eligible for fifteen hundred dollars in financial assistance to support funeral and burial costs if you're shot and you survived you're eligible for one thousand dollars and if your family wants to relocate, they'll pay $1,000 for your relocation costs. Uh, do you think, though, that you have to stay in the city, or would they reloc- re- relocate you to the south suburbs? If the city isn't bankrupt already, then that will bankrupt. That program will bankrupt it. Well, now, now, you, know, yeah, now you know why they only do murders or shootings, because if they did, you know, like uh, motor vehicle thefts and burglaries and thefts, it'd just be so much money that the city would go broke. Um, yeah, you know... You know what's fascinating about this, and you know, again, you can you can feel empathy for 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 parents, oh yeah, uh, you know, families and all that. But the, the problem is, is that when you look at the solution sets, they're always going to these these kind of things, which are you know the the, the downstream of the real problem. The you know, go upstream and solve the crimes, and you know, and, and 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 you know, reduce the number of murders. You know, let police let police do policing and all that. And instead, we're focusing on this kind of stuff, and it takes a lot of time to organize it up. Uh, an initiative like this, and that, that's the kind of time that should be spent on solving real crime, not not the after after effect. Well, there's something else here too. I mean, um, just a point of order. What a lot of these victims of uh, you know victims that are murdered or killed, somebody with a gun, 
you know, they're not great people. They're gangbangers. And so now you're telling me, as a Chicago resident, I need to subsidize the funeral of somebody who was a gangbanger in the city of Chicago? No, I don't I don't think so. Well, it's only for four neighborhoods right now. Are you ready? And your neighborhood's not in it, or your former neighborhood. Uh, West Garfield Park, East Garfield Park, Inglewood, West Inglewood, Inglewood, and New City. Yeah, well, how does that address my question? Oh, I don't know. You're it right. It doesn't. It doesn't. Right. Yeah. So what about yeah? So so now uh, law the law abiding are on the hook to provide funeral uh, uh, to, to to cover funeral costs and relocation expenses for uh, a gangbanger and his family. I'm not saying every victim is obviously, but I'm saying there's no uh, distinction made, and there should be even even for something as silly as this, as you point out, in terms of addressing the the core issue as opposed to the um, symptoms. No, I mean you're right. I mean. I guess we'd have to have a you know a trial, you know, for for everybody before we give them money. Yeah, it's, it's silly and it's you know it's but I guess it's no no sillier than than some of this basic income that Preckwickle and, and Life would keep pushing out. Where we keep handing out money to people who right. you know who don't want to work and who won't look for work. And you know, there's a record number of jobs in you know open open jobs in the country right now, like 11 million, 10 million jobs, and people don't want to work, and yet we're going to hand them money. So. We're handing in money to people who, who either don't deserve it or it just doesn't make sense. Um, we got uh, school board elections in the spring. You got uh, filing deadlines that have uh, now since passed. Um, what's uh, the the um, heightened importance of school board elections um, on a number of fronts, but particularly Illinois, the workers' rights amendment? Yeah, well, you guys have done a great job of covering. You know, the, you know, the school boards are the next next big in theory, fight that we should have here in Illinois. Uh, and Amendment 1 makes that more critical because now these these unions have even more uh, collective bargaining rights and they can cover more things that protect you know, the union's, quote, safety and economic welfare. And so it behooves parents everywhere to, to, to just, you know, think about it differently because the battle's really on when you talk about parents' rights and you know, the sex ed and, and the gen- gender studies and, and all these different pushes that are being made by the unions. And why it's critical is because tons of teacher contracts come due in the next year. There's about 200 contracts that are due in 2023 that are going to be up for renegotiation. So your board who negotiates with those uh, those unions are going to be elected. A lot of them are going to be elected in April. So you really this is a, a real chance to vet those board members and find out are they on your side? Are they on on you know parents' rights side? Are they concerned about the fact that we pay the highest property tax or second highest property tax in the country or not? And so it's a, so we laid out in, in wire points, we laid out a piece, we laid out all the uh, districts that have their contracts maturing or you know uh, ending next year. They'll be up for uh, renegotiation. So go out there, find out, and, and get engaged. He is Ted Dabrowski, president of wirepoints.org, all things oh. Illinois policy Wait, we related. We didn't ask him about his freshman oh, year. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we got to talk about your grades. I forgot about At that. At Georgia Tech, what would you get? Oh wow, <laughs> that was a, that was an awake, awakening call for me. It was really hard. So you know, I, I went to a small school in South Georgia, okay. private school, and I, I did really well. I was really good at you know, really good at school when I was in high school. Uh-huh. Uh, but then I get to Georgia Tech, and you're talking about suddenly the the classes got harder. They didn't ask you just how to calculate a number. They actually 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 asked you how to think, and you know, embedded in some three paragraph word problem is a, is a, is a math problem somewhere in there. Yeah, I got my butt kicked. Not only that, I you know I joined a fraternity and uh, you know all those things. Oh, oh excuses! Against me. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, my son's on the volleyball team. Joined a fraternity. 
got an A in compound chemistry, got an A in econ, got an A in calculus, and an A in English, and we're still waiting on that. But he thought he was failing econ. He he had it all planned. Like, I'm going to go to Georgia Tech campus in Paris to make up for my econ class, but he ended up... Doing a really good job, but yeah, okay. Well, congrats to him. Yeah, I, I didn't have that same. Like, it took me my junior years when I finally got serious again. So yeah, well, maybe if you weren't getting started right. Yeah, maybe if you weren't uh, running around stamps. campus like Otter, you wouldn't have you would have had, had that problem. Um, <laughs> well, we all learn. We all learn eventually. And yeah. something I'm I'm launching an investigation into um, what into uh, Peyton's. Um, Ancestry. dot com. I just I I don't those what grades. What? He's brilliant. He's smart. I know. My dad is How does that happen? Ge- My oh, dad's a genius. Skipped a generation. Oh. Oh, oh, no, no. I mean, when you think math <laughs> no. and science, you think How this. How dare you? Yeah, no, I'm just. <laughs> right. Open enrollment school mom went to in the Big Ten. He's killing it at Georgia Tech. Okay, sure. That makes sense. All right. Ted Dabrowski, President Wirepoints, Wirepoints.org. <laughs> Thanks, Ted. Appreciate it. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thanks. You too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Dan, Sean Penn is not done with you and people like you. Still alive? Sean Penn's still alive. Yeah, he's still alive. He has got a message for you. Aw. The anti-vaccine rhetoric. Um, it, it's it's a cowardice of conviction. I, I think that it is an unwillingness to engage in a culture of common sense uh, that at this point it seems criminal to me, actually. I, I really feel that, um, that, that, that if someone chooses not to be vaccinated, that they should choose to stay home, not go to work, not have a job. These are, you know, as, as long as we're all paying for these streets, we got to ride safely on them. And so I'm just hopeful that the mindset will change. And it started, we know that this really started with leadership voids. And now I think that there are some examples of leadership that are being helpful with it. Uh, but we really got to get everyone else, every, every, everybody on the same page. And I think the CDC should be much more clear. Yeah, he's uh, such a powerful influence. He's such is a, that going to change your mind? So thoughtful. Um, yeah, you know, what I find criminal is uh, aiding, abetting uh, drug cartel, cartel kingpins like Chapo um, or, oh, I don't know, um, doing the bidding of dictators who are threat to our national security in the hemisphere like Hugo Chavez. But that's me. That's me. So, you know, excuse me if I'm not interested in Sean Penn's lectures. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. A lot of... uh, theater of the absurd occurring in dc a lot of different shows on the hill at the same time we've got the jan 6th offering yesterday and uh this morning you've got um, the theater of the absurd as it pertains to avoiding a quote government shutdown unquote honestly do we ever tire of this rinse and repeat Government shutdown. Well, you mean the the temporary furlough of 
the non-essential employees, right? Fifteen percent of the federal workforce that will in our, invariably get back pay for having not worked. <sighs> so, uh, as expected, and as you heard Brett Bear predict on this show on Friday, there are going to be a lot of hand wringing, a lot of posturing, and ultimately, Mitch McConnell and a handful of Senate Democrats. I mean, excuse me, Senate Republicans. Although, who can tell the difference between the, the Republicans I'm talking about? They'll fold. Some of them are lame duckers. Some of them are big spenders. We wish they were lame duckers. And uh, they'll move the Democrats' $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill. And that's exactly what's happening. What will this mean for our uh, all-of-government approach to combating inflation? Right. More on this. Pleased to be joined by the Capitalist Pig. He's Jonathan Honig. Founding member of the Capitalist Pig Hedge Fund and Fox News contributor, also author of a new textbook of Americanism, The Politics of Ayn Rand. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, great to be with you. Where is this all hands-on-deck effort to eliminate inflation? I'm waiting for it. I think the whole country is waiting for it. You just, it. Sit, you just sit around and wait for uh, Jay Powell to make pronouncements. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, they, you know, they've been doing that. You know, the Fed has raised rates this year by the largest amount since the 1980s, one of the largest amounts in history. And what have we got for it, Dan and Amy? Inflation has kicked down from 8% to about 7%. It's still outpacing wages. It's still have, having a crippling effect on the American economy. And it's still keeping the productivity, the opportunity, the, the wealth creation that's possible in this country stifled. So I, I wish I could be more of an optimist a few days before Christmas. But we haven't tackled this inflation problem. Shuttered in D.C., that's where it has to be fixed. Well, well wait, there's well, a gas prices are going down, so things are on the right path. But that hasn't trickled down to the grocery stores. Well, yes, some prices have fallen. But keep in mind, uh, inflation isn't simply higher prices. It's that artificial expansion of the money supply caused by deficit spending. And whether it's, you know, student loan forgiveness or all the other types of spending that is still going on in Washington, we simply haven't turned the corner yet, Amy. And what worries me is that once inflation starts, once it gets above 5%, historically it takes about a decade, 10 years, to get back down under 2%. It's exactly what we saw in the 70s. It ebbed and, flowed, 70s, it ebbed and flowed, but it was there for the entire decade, crushing the American consumer and the American producer as well. Well, the fiscal policy matters too, I think. I, I, I used to, We used to believe that. And so, I mean, on the one hand, this is, you know, this is the focus of the efforts of all these fiscal conservatives. <clears throat> um, and on the other hand, $1.7 trillion in more funny money devaluing the currency, that's inflationary, isn't it? It's exactly, it's exactly right, Dan. I mean, you know, and, and, and ironically, both conservatives and liberals today could take a tip from Jimmy Carter, President Carter. We think of Carter as being a completely bumbling idiot. In many ways, he was certainly foreign policy. But, you know, in the late 70s, he held the line on spending. He de- deregulated vast parts of the economy, I mean, airline travel, trucking, uh, the beer, the craft beer industry, Jimmy Carter, and essentially started. So, you know, we need those types of structural changes to get the American entrepreneur back on track. I mean, Dan, you have so many young, uh, Dan and Amy, so many small business people I know in your audience. They're the ones who are hit hardest by this. They're the ones who are just trying to make payroll for one extra employee, one employee. Those are the ones on which the, the American economy is built, and those are the ones that are most impacted. You know, the so-called rich, they're always going to find a loophole. They're always going to find a way to, 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 to weasel out or whatever taxes Washington lays on them. It's that 
everyday entrepreneur that's hurting now more than anyone else, and that's a real tragedy in America. And we, we just keep trying. I mean, it seems to me we were talking about this a little bit last hour. Uh, we keep drop shipping this money, funny money, to from the Fed to the state locals, uh, partly under the guise of COVID still. And all, you just see uh, these politicians at the state and local level standing up all kinds of universal basic income programs, pilot programs, just all more cash giveaways, cash and prizes all the time. And, um, you know, I just wonder how that ends. You know, there was a, a, a study by Penn Wharton that, projects u.s debt at, at present rate is is on pace to be 225 percent of gdp by 2050 now you know by 2050 i'll be off into my eternal reward but um <laughs> but 225 225 percent of gdp seems like you know that's a problem and i remember when there were politicians that at least would feign interest in debt and deficits yeah, I mean, where does it end? And it, you don't even need to have a GDP or kind of a fancy economic number. It ends with lower quality of life of every American. And, it, and we're feeling it this holiday season. I mean, the majority of Americans are cutting back on holiday spending. They're cutting back on holiday travel. They're cutting back on holiday, holiday merriment. I mean, you can't find that in a spreadsheet. You can't find that in an economic report. But that's the net result of, again, exactly what you're talking about. All that funny money. Even just think of the so-called Paycheck Protection Program from a few years ago. I mean, basically the government just handed out hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. And the thought was, gee, as long as it gets spent. You know, that's the thought of it. Somehow government spending, government creating money, that's what creates wealth. Simply not the case. And Jeff Bezos had to knock on 60 doors to raise his first million dollars for Amazon. He had to raise 60 doors he had to knock on. And that's where wealth creation comes from. Not legislators printing out more money and giving it to those in need, but entrepreneurs creating wealth, finding entrepreneurs and changing our lives. I don't think, I simply don't think it's too late, but we have to have it in Washington. Can't happen on Wall Street. And it starts by getting this inflation under control. And there, there's a. Um, did you see this thing, uh, the study? Out? Um, there's a, three states in this country where you can make more than a hundred thousand dollars by not working in total available benefits. Washington, Mass, Washington State, Massachusetts, and New Jersey. Um, this is from um, a Chicago econ professor, friend of the show, Casey Mulligan, and his and a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Three states. I mean, you're talking about it is more attractive to not be productive than to be productive. Six figures in those three states. What a friggin' insult, excuse my French, to all of our listeners who are getting up now on one of the darkest days of the year, dragging themselves out of bed and going to work to make that money, Dan and Amy. Honestly, it is infuriating to me. As a small business person, you know, we're, as I said, the power of the economy. So the fact that we work, and whether it's Springfield or, or uh, Chicago or Washington, passes out our earnings to others who don't, I mean, that is wealth redistribution. Now, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but it's certainly one of the central planks of the Communist Manifesto, heavy wealth distribution. So the irony is that the most prosperous times in this country's history, the times in which everyone was better off, came before all the minimum wage and wealth redistribution wealth redistribution and, and uh, paycheck protection and uh, welfare programs you know, came back when the country was the most free. So, you know, I'm not worried about China. I'm not worried about Russia. As long as we stay free, economically free, we'll stay prosperous. Fortunately, I think Biden's bringing us in exactly the opposite direction. Um, now, uh, you uh, run the Capitalist Big Hedge Fund. Um, Carolyn, Caroline Ellison is looking for a gig. I don't know if you've got any openings. Uh <laughs> What do you think? Well, look, it was fraud. It was straight up fraud. This was 
bank embezzlement, if you would. I mean, crypto sounds very out there and new and technologically advanced, but, you know, people deposited their money with FTX, and then they took that money and went and made their own investments, bought their own real estate, so straight-up fraud. It does, though, highlight, Dan, uh, kind of the, 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 Amy, the, the kind of the state of the American economy. People have lost tremendous amounts of money this year in 2022. In fact, this year has seen the financial markets take the biggest hit since the global financial crisis back in 2009. So there's been tremendous amounts of money lost. A lot of it was created exactly as you said. I mean, listen, too long ago, you remember, the government literally sent people checks and said, oh, put it in the stock market, put it in Bitcoin. A lot of that money went into what they say is malinvestments, in my opinion, Bitcoin among them. So you're seeing the kind of the net result of that. A lot of massive losses, uh, some stocks uh, down 40, 50, 60 percent, and of course, uh, uh, Bitcoin down by even more of that. And what I'm telling my clients now over at CapitalistPig.com is the old Wall Street adage, when in doubt, stay out. Still too many uncertainties with the market, the dollar, and Washington to make any big moves in the market right now. He is Jonathan Honig, founding member of the Capitalist Big Hedge Fund and Fox News contributor, also author of a new textbook of Americanism, The Politics of Ayn Rand. Jonathan, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Merry Christmas, guys. Best to you. Be well. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's morning answer. Hallelujah! Holy s***! On AM560. Where's the Tylenol? The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, um, elite uh, NYC university called the New School. Students are uh, occupying campus at present. They have issued a 16-point list of demands, which include uh, an A grade for everyone. Better cafeteria food and free tampons and hypodermic needles. Hypodermic? What? Is that? what? Uh-huh. Yeah. We're free tampons. We paid for tampons our whole life. Suck it up, get a second job if you Those to. days are over. I want them back. It teaches responsibility. What do you want? Free tampons. What do you, want, do you them? want them? Now. Could I get them now? You want them in their men's washroom here? Uh, we demand all... The 16 points, there's a lot here. We okay. demand all students be refunded for the loss of instructional time due to the strike. We demand a tuition freeze through these academic years. Go to Purdue. Wah, wah. Uh-huh. We... Um, demand uh, pay ratio. We demand the maximum gross salary at the new school be in proportion defined by non-administrative new school community to the base pay of university workers. Any increases in the gross salaries of the board, provost, and president can only occur with a proportional increase in all university pay. No, it's nice. They're looking out for, you know, the lesser paid university employees. Isn't that nice? Mm -hmm. Uh, We demand all materials, course material. We demand all materials and resources necessary to complete and succeed in course objectives would be made available by the university Materials and resources required by course objectives will be either provided or all students will be compensated for costs occurred. So, you know, free books and stuff. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Tuition free. Of course. Free books and stuff. I don't know Bernie why. You, Sanders model. I don't know why you need the free books and stuff. Like, as mementos, you're already demanding that you get an A and everything. Right. So you don't even need to bring any books. Yeah. Uh-huh. We demand, and then you got a bunch of people that have to resign to the president, the provost, oh, okay. the vice yeah, president. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they want a hand in the um, new leadership after those people resign. And uh, they want the Board of Trustees disbanded. Oh. And a participatory process uh, be initiated that would uh, be more deliberative and so on. Does everybody get a free electric car? Are they demanding that as well? Um, I mean, they didn't go there, which is, you know, 
very restrained of them. But uh, yeah, oh, grading right. So the grading policy: every student sh- receives a final course grade of A, as well as the removal of incomplete grades for the fall twenty twenty two semester. Everybody gets an A. It's the Oprah semester. Attendance shall have no bearing on course grade. Obviously. Why would it matter if you show up? Grading should not be conducted by anyone other than the official course instructor or teaching assistant with no temporary progress reviewer allowed to grade students. I don't know what that is, but I'm not surprised to hear there's layers of personnel associated with grading these days. Yeah, so everybody gets an A for the fall 2022 semester. Why, you ask? No no idea. (laughs) No idea. Does does the why really matter? Why? Because we said so. Why? Because we want it now. Um, so yeah, and we're used to getting what we want, and that's uh, that school is uh, fifty-two grand a year. Oh my gosh! Yeah, uh. future leaders of America. Okay, all right. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I mean, this stuff has been going on since we were undergrads, but it just persists. Stanford University's Guide to Acceptable Words. <sighs> Call yourself an American. A better to say U.S. citizen. Immigrant, out. Person who has immigrated. You can't master your subject at Stanford any longer. The school instructs that historically masters enslaved people. This is, you know. Uh, like you can't say master bedroom anymore. Correct. You have to say main bedroom. Correct. Don't design a blind study that unintentionally, quote, unintentionally perpetrates, uh, perpetuates the, that disability is somehow abnormal or negative, furthering an ableist culture. Is that what it does? Gangbusters banned. It, quote, invokes the notion of police action against gangs in a positive light, which may have racial undertones. Oh, my God. Do you know uh, Ms. Newsom, you know, the first lady of California, she calls herself California's first partner. Yeah. And they're married. It's wonderful. She must have been. Oh, she, she went must, to Stanford, too, by the way. Must be a Stanford grad, yeah. No, she is. Yeah. Maybe she participated in this Stupid. Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative, a multi phase project of Stanford's IT leaders. The list took 18 months of collaboration with stakeholder groups. Mm-hmm. There's 18 months well spent. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that gets you, that has uh, culturally, that has Steven Spielberg uh, apologizing to sharks. You said that the other day. I thought you were kidding. No. I'm truly and to this day regret the decimation of the shark population because of the book and the film. Talking about Jaws, of course. I really, truly regret it. Uh Uh-huh. It's like changing monkey pox to M pox. What about chicken pox? What are the the chickens? They might might feel bad. And, you know, you you say, like, this stuff is um, silly and it doesn't amount to much, but it does. It does. Uh, as Emerson famously observed, first the language is corrupted and then man is corrupted. And that's what uh, the Academy has been doing for the better part of, well, I mean, at least since I've been there. So that's uh, going on three decades. And um, that then jumps over into policy discussions, like what was allowed and what was not allowed to say about COVID and the response to COVID over the last three years. And no one knows more about that than our next guest. He is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford. He's a research associate at the National Bureau of Economics Research, senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, 
and a at the Stanford Freeman Spogli Institute. Dr. Bhattacharya, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. Um, so, you know, you've been talking a bit about this since uh, you had such a profile um, during the, the, the pandemic as part of the great Barrington Declaration crew with uh, Kaldorf and Gupta and other eminent uh, doctors and epidemiologists. And then also more recently because of the Twitter files and uh, the details of what um, people knew what was happening, but, you know, couldn't quite put the whole case together because they didn't have the information, which is that uh, you and others like you were being targeted by Twitter and the public health establishment for silencing. And I, I saw your interview last week on, on Tucker Carlson's show, just talking about the impact beyond you and beyond your colleagues, the impact of what happened during COVID and, you know, using yourself as an example. You know, that, that's really the most important thing for, for the audience to know. Um, the, 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 the point of the censorship uh, that I faced and many other lockdown opponents faced just for the just for the crime of offering an alternative that would have saved the lives of many elderly people and older people and other high risk people and not harm children for just for that crime for, for actually the crime was contradicting people like Tony Fauci we were censored we were essentially I mean it was literally a, a trends blacklist he used the, they used a prescribed term that the, that's actually on that Stanford list you're not supposed to use um, <laughs> <laughs> the the, uh, the and the point is that because they because uh, we were censored, a, a fair debate didn't happen, and bad policy was adopted. Children didn't go to school. Uh, economies were devastated. Small businesses were destroyed. Uh, the, the people skipped basic preventive care and now are showing up at late stage cancer that should have been picked up earlier. People died because of the censorship. Um, we would have won the policy argument had there been a fair fight had there been allowed to be a fair debate. But instead, powerful bureaucrats, both in private sector and public sector, abused their power to make sure that didn't happen. Well, how did you deal with that personally when that was happening to you? Take us back in time. Sure. So, I mean, in October 2020 is when we wrote, uh, me, Sinatra Gupta, and, and Martin Kuldorf, we wrote the, the Great Bank Declaration from you know, Stanford, Harvard, Oxford. A few days afterwards... Uh, Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, wrote to Tony Fauci asking for a devastating takedown. I started getting hit pieces in all kinds of newspapers, uh, asking, you know, saying, why did I want to let the virus rip when I was calling for focus protection of vulnerable people? Um, and, and, you know, it's, to some extent, it was like I just wanted to get the message out. The, the, the key message was uh, that there was not actually a scientific consensus in favor of lockdown. In fact, there was quite a bit of uh, dissension among scientists and dissent. Um, and it, it absolutely shocked me to see someone like with the power of Francis Collins or Tony Fauci. You know, they, they control the vast amounts of funding for every biomedical scientists who know it in the United States uh, and elsewhere, actually. And um, and if you cross them, it turns out, they 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 destroy you. Um, that, that was shocking. But the, the, what was even more shocking was this, their control of the press and big media, uh, big tech, to make sure that the message that doesn't get out so you don't have a fair fair hearing. Uh, I mean, I still am shocked at, to that, that they use their power in such an ab- abusive way. Uh, and, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of, it's not, it's not pleasant to be on the, 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 the focused end of that. But, uh, but on the other, the, the, to me, the thing that hurt more was that we adopted these policies that were, that were harming vulnerable people. 
that we didn't need to have. There were other policies available, more consistent with science, more more compassionate, more uh, uh, more likely to end up with good results for for regular people that we just were thrown away because of this censorship. Has there been any um, clawing back from people who were part of this mob, uh, people that uh, attempted to sideline, like your colleague, um, John uh, Ioannidis, who uh, was, um, his reputation was like as one of the leading epidemiologists in the world, but when he came out with some reviews of COVID response policy that, you know, he was saying, well, it doesn't really square with the science and data, then he's then he was sort of quieted up, too. Now, he hasn't been as outspoken as you and others have been. But, I mean, just like people's careers, people that, you know, we want to, to have careers because they're leaders in their fields. I wonder if there's been um, any sort of contrition, um, a recognition of uh, maltreatment or... Uh, are, are people getting back to where they were pre-pandemic? Because you know we want the leading minds in these fields to be um, to be working in those fields. You know, John uh, Johnny Anides, he's a, he's a really good example of what uh, what what that would happen. He's the most cited scientist, living scientist in the world. As far as, if, if he's not the number one, he's very close. Uh, I mean, he is has an incredible career. Uh, and in fact, he when Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos fame uh, was was making the rounds, and almost a, a whole bunch of other people were were lauding her. He wrote a, pa- a paper that said, "Look, she, she, the technology that she's using doesn't. There's no proof that it works." And it took years for him to get uh, to get recognition that he he'd seen it early. Huh. Here he's he spent uh, the, the pandemic writing writing and publishing dozens of peer reviewed papers furthering the science of COVID quietly um and he's but he has been right he was right early in the pandemic that we didn't know that the the mortality risk and he's been right that the, about the devastating harms of lockdowns he's a great example of, of people in the scientific community being very skeptical about lockdowns and yet receiving very poor treatment um that still hasn't come back but i i think that's where it's headed it'll be like the theranos uh, uh story people over time, are starting to realize how bad a policy those lockdowns were, how misguided they were, how unnecessary they were. All of the movement is in in the favor and toward people who are understanding that we didn't need to do what we did and that we should never do these kinds of lockdowns again. Uh, so I'm not worried about uh, people. I mean, there are a lot of people that have changed their minds now. I think many more people than say October 2020 when we first wrote the Great Banking Declaration. Weren't you surprised that you, you'd go to a state like Utah or Florida? And- They'd be in school. They'd be playing sports. They'd have football games in you know September of 2020. And then places like Illinois, we my kids had eight days of in person learning. Eight. That's it. Oh, in 2020 to 2022, and then they'd let us sporadically play you know three football games. And I mean, sports scholarships were ruined. You know, life experiences that they could never ever ever get back. But did that surprise you at all? How each state was so drastically different. I mean, you know, in the United States, the states do differ from each other, but I, I didn't never imagined, you know, I might go, I, I, I live in California. My kids had the same experience as you did. They went to public school during the pandemic and they had very, very few in-person days. I, it's, it's one thing to have different states make different policies. It's another for so much of the United States, so many states in the United States to basically give up on educating children. Yep. That's a 
that is a common thing I thought we all had together. It didn't matter which state or what pol- politics you had. We all shared this commitment to, to making sure our kids got a good childhood. Um, that so many states adopted these policies that harmed our children uh, for nothing. Because, you, know, you know, the European example, the Swedish example of opening schools, uh, the, you know, even, even the French open schools, uh, despite other lockdown policies, uh, that didn't hurt the pandemic, and, and they, were, they prioritized protecting children by letting them go to school. Our California, Illinois, Maryland, all these all these states that closed schools for so long harmed our kids for nothing. It it uh, and it's not just that it reduced the amount of education that they had or educational outcomes that has long lifetime consequences. Our kids will live poor, less healthy, shorter lives as a consequence. And that's clear from the social science literature before the pandemic about the importance of schooling. Schooling is the most important social investment we make, and we threw it aside. Many, many states threw it aside during the pandemic. And you also saw this sort of unholy alliance, and this is documented through communications, between the teachers' unions, like Randy Weigarten, the head of AFT, and CDC, where sort of one was, uh, they were sort of collaborating on messaging. Um, and, And so it seems to me that part of the problem for many in the public health arena is they don't want, I don't want to go up against the teachers' union. And you see it uh, persist to this day. I mean, Philadelphia, their schools, uh, they're wearing masks inside buildings for the first two weeks after winter break. I mean, it still goes on because the teachers union saw an opportunity here for, for money and benefits and so forth. And um, they, you know, they, they forged this alliance with the CDC. Maybe it existed uh, prior to that, but it certainly was strengthened if it did. And, um, and that was not based on science. That was based on comms and politics. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the, the, the I, I blame the the uh, uh, CDC more than I blame the, the teachers' unions. The CDC should have just told them no and quietly showed them the science yeah. uh, about the importance of schooling, the importance of uh, you know, if they'd just done that, if they just stayed, uh, if they'd held to what the science, the scientific evidence was actually saying, and then resisted. Uh, you know, partisan pressure to change their recommendations or to sort of soften their recommendations in in face of that pressure. I think a lot of uh, a lot of things would have been different. Um, it was the responsibility of the CDC to push back against the teachers union pressure, and they didn't do it. We talked to this uh, this guy Justin Hart, who was sort of a, a corporate data guy who became a, a COVID watcher because of uh, everything that was impacting his children's lives, as you were describing. And, um, you know, we're thinking about uh, the last uh, couple of years and what was sort of the most pernicious piece of misinformation that was bandied about long after it was clear that it wasn't true in terms of its impact. And he said something that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about. He said the idea of asymptomatic spread, because the idea of asymptomatic spread was the predicate for uh, lockdowns and all these policies. And it was one of those sort of statements that it was difficult to present any data and science to categorically refute. What, what, what do you think about that? And, and basically the same question we asked him, the most dangerous piece of, of, uh, of bunk, that, you know, of, of, of a pronouncement, the policy pronouncement that was discredited, that persisted nonetheless. You know, the funny thing about if, if asymptomatic spread is true, it's really easy to spread asymptomatic, asymptomatically, then the, the, the implication is not lockdown. I mean, because what does that mean? That means you have to physically separate every human being from each other f- 
for for the for the uh, for the rest of time or something. I mean, right. what what it's, it's uh, you know newborns from moms. Uh, it's the implication of asymptomatic spread is you focus your efforts on protecting the most vulnerable, um, to, to reduce their risk until you get better therapeutics, vaccines, and so on. Um, not not lockdown. So even if you believed in asymptomatic spread, the, the right thing to do was not lockdown. It was still focus protection of vulnerable people. Um, the, uh, the the I, I think there's so so many, uh, but probably the worst uh, piece of misinformation that the government spread through the pandemic is that uh, is that the vaccines have stopped disease spread. Yeah. Uh-huh. On the basis of that idea, vaccine mandates were put in place that have been tremendously harmful. Harmful because you know first that so many people lost their jobs uh, we've, uh, over over these vaccine mandates. People were discriminated against. You couldn't go to the public library in New York if you were not vaccinated. Yeah, and and the, you know the other thing is is it's a little less visible, but it's it, what it did is when the public health authorities did this, said this. Contrary to what the science was showing, and then the vaccine um, uh, didn't stop tr- disease transmission. The, the people lost trust in vaccines. Vaccines are very, very important for public health. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm a big proponent of vaccines for for you know, the MMR vaccine, the PT vaccine. To have uh, people lose trust in public health is is, is actually a very terrible thing. Um, and it's public health that did this by overstating uh, the evidence, in fact, going contrary to what the evidence is actually showing, and then wholeheartedly backing essentially forced vaccination when people, for a new, for a product that was new and people didn't really, you know, they, you know it was, for, especially for young people that didn't really need it, not, not really as much as older people did. Um, it should have just been something where they told people, look, if you're older, you really need the vaccine. Please go talk to your doctor. Make sure you can get it. If you're younger, it's less less important. But still, if you're if you're interested, you can go talk to your doctor. And then not put any pressure on doctors to tell people tell to to, to force this. They just it should have turned this into a a regular medical um, decision rather than this all-encompassing reorganized society to force everyone to get this product. Well, real quick before we let you go, doctor. Um, Bhattacharya, how is this a vaccine if you need another shot every two months? Because <laughs> that mean, doesn't make sense. We get the chicken pox once, measles once, polio it's, it's, once. It's, it's not a very, it's not an excellent vaccine. It would have been, re, it, 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 I, I wish there were a better better vaccine. Um, and I think uh, the, the policy of like asking people to get it every two months is, is crazy. I don't think people will, will, will say yes to that. Um, the, the issue is they're looking at, at antibodies production rather than protection of, of, against severe disease. For that, maybe you know, older people, for younger people, it's much less needed. And I don't understand the force behind it. He is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a medical professor and economist at Stanford University and one of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's morning answer. You stink. I think you're going to have a good Christmas, all right? I like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. An AM 560. The answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's morning answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-4700. 
1-800-500-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.